Welcome everyone to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com because you won't find us on Google or Facebook. We respect your privacy and will continue to fight the Silicon Valley censorship. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by one of my favorite guests, Seem Lan, who is in my estimation, the most likely individual I personally know who's going to make it to 120 without any other interventions. I don't know of anyone who started at such a young age doing almost everything right to extend their lifespan. So not only that, but he's got an incredible mind that really delves into the science that supports these changes. Um, He wrote a book, Metabolic Autophagy, which is a unbelievable companion to fat for fuel. In fact, in some ways, I think it's even better because it goes into some areas that I don't in fat for fuel. But it is just, if you have, if you like fat for fuel, you just have to pick up metabolic autophagy. Uh, It compiles just all the basic science information you need to know in a digestible format. It's almost like taking a, a college course, but it's dumbed down for high school students. So it's really good. Uh, but he's written a new book, and that's why he's on today, which is titled Stronger by Stress, which goes into the really important concept of hormesis and antifragility. So welcome, and thank you for joining us today, Sam. Hey, yeah. Thanks for having me again, and yeah, I'm glad to see you. Yeah, so uh, maybe you can tell us what was the motivation to write your book. Yeah, well, I actually wasn't planning on writing a book until like maybe the end of this year. But, uh, you know, as as both of you know, that uh, the beginning of this year kind of started off with like a massive pandemic. And uh, I just want to, you know, first of all, I was stuck in my home in quarantine. And second of all, I wanted to kind of help people to... uh, overcome some of the challenges they may come across because of this global crisis and uh, one of the biggest ones is I think stress and uh, part of the reason I wrote the book was to help people become more resilient and uh, more uh, robust against these kinds of things because you know the world we live in it's uh, full of unpredictable challenges and uh, you know, pandemics and viruses are part of them, but there's also other potential dangers like, you know, global warming or, you know, fluctuations in temperature, uh, you know, different kinds of uh, physical challenges, all those things there that have been a part of the human condition for, for eons. And that's why, you know, the modern human has become somewhat more fragile towards those things and uh, kind of goes to show how most people just overreacted to the virus and they were really scared because they're not really used to like a small amount of stress. And the book itself was, uh, was meant to just create more resilient people uh, in, the, in the face of like these uh, 
unavoidable challenges of the life or the world that we live in because those things you can't really avoid them you can't create this bubble society where everything is perfect you you all have to come across stress and uh, different kinds of stressors uh, all the time yeah so that's a good motivation so you know fortunately um at least in my estimation and viewpoints and, and uh, i believe that many other experts in natural medicine would would concur uh, if you've gotten two fact variables right, which is your vitamin D status, <clears throat> in other words, you have your vitamin D levels at least 30 to 40 nanograms per ml or multiply times 24.5 if it's nanomoles per liter. And you're metabolically flexible. And you know, really the book you wrote, A Metabolic Autophagy, is just an unbelievably excellent tool to help you achieve metabolic flexibility and avoidance and resistance. So if you've got those two things going on, the likelihood that you're going to have a negative consequences of this infection is, is pretty remote. It, mm. You know, I yeah. would use, you'd have much, you'd, I would definitely be willing to take pretty high odds and bet against it. So, uh, that, that, yeah, totally. so then you don't have to worry about the stress. So the key thing is to do the right things first, you know, so that you don't, you know, and not have to be stressful. So you, you know, the, yeah. Again, kudos again for writing the book, Metabolic Autophagy. Yeah, absolutely. Like the prevention is the best medicine and uh, especially for stress adaptation itself as well. If you're, let's say, if your body's uh, if your body is unfit or if your body is lacking key nutrients, then even like the smaller stressors in your life are, are going to become more dreadful. Like you're going to feel, you're going to experience chronic stress and you're going to overactivate the sympathetic nervous system, even if you're like stuck in traffic or if you're, if you're like a spill, spill a cup of coffee or whatever it is, like these small stressors can become really massive if your body is, let's say, uh, incapable of dealing with those stressors and it's uh, not in an optimal state of functioning. Whereas on the other hand, if your body is really recovered and it has been exposed to like uh, the right amount of stress in the right uh, time, then it has also built up this uh, higher level of stress adaptation and resilience. So uh, the smaller stressors are becoming yeah, literally like meaningless. So you, you have like a bigger capacity to even face the larger stressors. So why don't we get, you know, one of the goals of your book is to increase resiliency or anti-fragility, which is a term coined by uh, Nassim Talam, I believe. Uh, yeah. So why don't you explain what those are and why it's important to achieve those? Yeah, definitely. Like, uh, like you said, it's, uh, it's this philosophist and uh, economist, uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, who wrote the book uh, Anti-Fragile. And uh, Anti-Fragile describes this thing that is the opposite of uh, fragility. Or like if something is fragile, then it's going to break into you know, millions of pieces if it comes into contact with something like a stress or something that is uh, damaging. Uh, and anti-fragile is the opposite of that. It's not breaking down. It's not uh, being destroyed. It actually gets better. It actually gains from the stress and becomes stronger. Uh, which, which isn't precisely the same thing as robustness or resilience. Like something that is robust is something like a piece of stone or like a me metal ignant. Like you, you, can, you can hit it, you can drop it on the ground. It's not going to break, but it's going to stay the same. It's gonna, not going to change. Whereas something that is anti-fragile is going to gain from the stress. So something like anti-fragile is like a hydra. If you cut one head off, 
then two heads are going to grow instead, or like the human body itself is anti-fragile to a certain extent, exercise causes small amounts of stress and damage to the body, but eventually in the end result, we get stronger and we get healthier because of the small stress. And uh, yeah, like anti-fragile is, um, is a more optimal uh, like a goal to aim towards because you're not only you know being able to handle the stress and uh, resist it but also you're gaining you're gaining getting the benefits from the stress so one of your favorite tools is intermittent fasting or sometimes more accurately termed time-restricted eating Um, and last year the new england journal published a review that show that most of the benefits are not necessarily related to reduced reactive oxygen species. And other studies have shown that it's not just due, well, well, you know that calorie restriction provides a lot of benefits, but you can get pretty similar, if not even more benefits with time-restricted eating. And the reason it's important because it's it's one of the key ways that you become metabolically flexible and and, uh, insulin sensitive to build up your anti-fragility. So why don't you expand on you know, how that factors into your program and recommendations. Yeah, certainly like, uh, you know, calorie restriction is a very known way to extend lifespan in uh, virtually all species. And, but, you know, the problem is that if you're, if you're going to have to tell a free living human that in order to live longer, you have to eat 20 or 30% less calories for the rest of life, then they're probably not going to want to hear you and they will much rather keep on doing what they're doing. So uh, fortunately, there has been shown, like you mentioned in that study in uh, New England Journal of Medicine, that they found that calorie or intermittent fasting mimics a lot of the same effects of calorie restriction. And um, it actually can be somewhat more beneficial because uh, it not only has these life, life extension benefits, but it also turns on uh, certain key defensive mechanisms inside a body that make it more anti-fragile and also provide like additional health benefits. And, uh, you know, one of those things have to do with like autophagy, uh, but there's also things like increased glutathione, uh, increased NRF2 and uh, sirtuins and, and increased NAD. So many other these these uh, longevity boosting uh, and immune immunostrengthening pathways that, that get activated when you're fasting that don't necessarily get activated when you are restricting calories. So um, in a way, practicing some form of intermittent fasting is just a great way to uh, get the benefits of calorie restriction without, without experiencing the negative side effects from it because calorie restriction can also be very fragile and it, it can leave you uh, vulnerable. For example, if you end up losing your muscle mass because of you know, chronically calorie restriction, then it's actually going to shorten your lifespan and it's actually making you uh, more vulnerable to potential, you know, dangers in your environment or like falling down, you break a hip, uh, you have less muscle mass, all those things. And they're not like, uh, they're not like really anti-fragile things. Uh, so that's why intermittent fasting can uh, sidestep these uh, negative side effects. Yeah, I'd like to go in some of the details because you're really have acquired a high level of expertise in this area, more than most people I know. And so I want to find out how your, what your current understanding and application of this process is, because there seems to be some value in cycling in and out rather than doing, you know, a specific window all the time that, because your body likes this variability. It just doesn't want the same thing continuously. So I know you were a fan uh, initially, at least at one point we're doing OMAD or one meal a day. 
and uh, definitely engaging in a pretty rigorous time-restricted eating window. So I want to, would like you to talk about your personal regimen and how and expand upon that af, expand after that on recommendations more broadly because I think there you know certainly people just starting into this can't attain such a rigid goal and and maybe elderly people uh, are going to want to not have as rigid a restriction uh, and then also thirdly talk about how you might want to optimize that program for muscle gain. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Like, uh, I think uh, since the last time we talked, I haven't changed my mind about intermittent fasting a lot, but uh, I, may ha I, I do have uh, come to the conclusion that you don't necessarily have to push the envelope with the fasting window that much, so to say. So I think there isn't inherently much difference between like eating one meal a day or even doing the 16 and 8 type of intermittent fasting where you eat twice a day and you eat within eight hours. Uh, because uh, you know, already if you're fasting within a one 24-hour period, then uh, the, the fast itself isn't uh, substantially different and the amount of autophagy wouldn't, wouldn't matter that much either in such a sh short time frame, uh, as long as you're still healthy. So that, uh, that's well, why. Let, let me ask a question there because it extends into the muscle building. It would seem, because I, I think this is one, another area where you're really excelling, it's just providing practical recommendations to build muscle mass. So one, mass, one meal a day might be somewhat challenging because you, you're only going to build muscle when you activate mTOR. And you, to activate yeah. mTOR, you've got to have protein and leucine and, or branched-chain amino acids uh, and, uh, and some carbohydrates, of course. So it would seem like if you had a 16-8 window or at least six to eight hours that if you had that protein bolus and stimulus to activate mTOR and then six hours later do it twice, you can activate mTOR twice a day and you might get mm -hmm. better muscle building benefits. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And uh, like you said, in order to build muscle, you need to activate mTOR and uh, what determines your um, muscle growth throughout the 24-hour period is the balance between uh, mTOR stimulation as well as autophagy. So if you're eating only once a day, then the amount of mTOR stimulation is relatively small compared to eating twice a day or three times a day. So that's why if someone has the goal of increasing their muscle mass or uh, maintaining muscle mass um, or preventing sarcopenia, then for them, it is uh, much wiser and better to be incorporating more frequent meals. And for them, I would say that 16-8 type of fasting where they eat twice a day is, uh, is perfectly suitable and is actually better than one meal a day because... Uh, you know, it's, it's, it becomes increasingly more difficult to, uh, let's say, maintain muscle mass if you're, uh, if you're already predisposed to sarcopenia and you're eating like once a day because uh, there's a threshold. There's a threshold how much mTOR you can stimulate per meal and how much muscle protein synthesis you can uh, create per meal as well. So that's why you have to kind of spread it out uh, throughout the day to a certain extent. Like it doesn't have to mean that you start eating six times a day, but uh, increasing the eating window is uh, generally a better idea. And uh, for most people, I would say that uh, the 16 and 8 type of fasting where they fast for 16 hours and eat within 8 hours is a, like a, is a, is a really good balance between getting, getting, a, getting a daily stimulation in autophagy while at the same time also uh, stimulating enough mTOR and uh, being able to build muscle with it. Yeah, now, I, I would agree with you. And the only exception, I think, might be those who are not metabolically flexible. Mm -hmm. and are seeking to achieve uh, 
that goal. And like it's 80% of the population they're overweight. So if you fit that and they're in that category, you may want to have a one meal a day or even go for some days of not eating anything at all until you get to that point where you're insulin sensitive and you, you've reached your weight goals and you're flexible. But, you know, I think yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. I think that the six day is the way to go. And I, I, for myself personally, I was a little bit too restrictive in going down to four hours. And I think that was counterproductive. And I think you need to separate it out to uh, get that, especially as you get older and your kidneys are challenged, which happens with yeah. many people. And then you can't have all that protein all at once. It's just not good on your kidneys. Yeah, so totally. Yeah, like, uh, yeah, it's it's a very common, let's say, mistake people in the innovative fasting community tend to make that they want to <laughs> gradually all, all like push the eating window as small as possible and fast all the time, which uh, is actually eventually going to uh, maybe become counterproductive and actually may cause uh, unnecessary damage to your metabolism. So, for example in the context of stress adaptation and antifragility, then uh, let's say, for example, if, you, if, you, if your body becomes too accustomed to the fasting because you're you know, doing one meal a day all the time, then that can eventually slow down the metabolism and lower thyroid functioning, where, which is, uh, which is uh, like a negative thing for your longevity and uh, metabolic uh, flexibility as well. Because if your metabolism is slower, then it's also more easy, easy for your body to become obese and develop insulin resistance because uh, its metabolic rate is slower. So uh, that's why having a higher metabolic rate tends to be more beneficial in terms of like losing weight. It's easier to lose weight by eating more calories and your body also has a higher threshold at uh, which it can stay metabolically flexible because you know, athletes, people who are very fit, their metabolic rate is already pretty high and uh, they don't have to really worry about uh, you know, like restricting carbohydrates or something like that, whereas someone who is obese or they have insulin resistance, then their metabolic rate is already, you know, pretty low as well. And uh, therefore, it's uh, much harder for them to stay healthy. So why, why don't we talk a little bit about carbs? It's an important component. Um, and in fact, when you're seeking to stimulate mTOR, it may be even more important than the protein. As I understand it, the, that insulin secretion is a really powerful activator of mTOR. I mean, you need the, the branch chains too, but I think you need both. And just to do branch mm. chain amino acids without providing carbohydrates, it may be counterproductive. So and I want, I'd like you to, to address that and also how your thoughts on cycling the carbs around, because it seems to be chronically low carb, maybe good initially for a while, but it, I think it's a disaster long-term. And then chronically high carb, we know is a disaster. So why don't you address that and your uh, concept of what you believe might be the ideal cycling range? Uh, well, yeah, well, the, the carbs can be useful for muscle growth, but they're not uh, like a necessary part of it. You can stimulate mTOR and build muscle with only protein and getting enough calories as well. But the insulin is still a, like a very powerful anabolic hormone and it does help. So, uh, you know, uh, it's it is possible to build muscle with a low carb or a or a ketogenic diet, but but, uh, but like at the same time, carbs can be also useful. And I do believe that chronic ketosis isn't necessarily the best solution either, especially especially for metabolic flexibility, because uh, there are a lot of studies showing that uh, you know chronic ketosis can eventually lead to like insulin resistance or some mild forms of it. 
So I think it's not pathological insulin resistance. It's more like just the body doesn't or the body loses its ability to burn carbohydrates and therefore it down regulates insulin production and becomes mildly insulin resistant but if you do it you know chronically and then you end up eating carbs accidentally then you'll find yourself in this really tight spot where your body is still not producing enough insulin and therefore it can cause more additional damage so that's why i believe a more flexible approach is uh is a uh, better in the long term because you're able to still use both uh, you're still able to become like a fat burner, uh, while at the same time you, you don't become uh, uh, insulin resistant towards carbs either, and you can incorporate both. So that in 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 the in practice, that would mean that uh, people can do some form of a, like a cyclical keto diet, where they eat keto on some days, and uh, but they also incorporate some days where they eat more carbs uh, to kick themselves out of ketosis as as well as uh, break this uh, mild insulin resistance that may develop. Uh, I myself like to uh, eat keto where on days where I'm not working out. So uh, on, on, on my rest days where I don't have like a lot of physical activity, then it's perfect to stay in ketosis and eat low carb because my body isn't burning that many carbs or fuel either. Uh, whereas on some other days, where I have like a high intensity training or some resistance training or on days where I want to really stimulate mTOR, then on those days, I'll just have uh, more carbs because, um, you know, the body uses carbs and glycogen during a workout. And uh, if you eat carbs after a workout, then the body is already primed to uh, use those carbs uh, more efficiently uh, instead of storing them as fat or instead of developing diabetes from it. So uh, it's like a perfect time to kind of strategize or time your carbohydrate intake around your exercise because uh, you know your body is the most insulin sensitive after a workout because uh, the uh, muscle contractions activate the glucose transporter GLUT4 and uh, th then you don't even need insulin to shuttle uh, carbs into muscle cells either so uh, that, that's why you know having some carbs around a workout itself won't necessarily uh, be harmful as long as you, as long as you are still like metabolically flexible and uh, you have metabolic health. Because uh, if again, like this is the context situation, if a, if a person already has insulin resistance or they are diabetic, then for them having more carbs may be counterproductive because the body isn't uh, capable of handling it. Uh, but whereas if someone is already healthy, then for them it's not necessarily, it's not necessary for them to be on this very restricted diet especially if they are worried about incident making them fat or uh, carbs giving them diabetes so that's not like the that's not like the that's not true so the, the, it's always a uh, very context dependent to the individual and uh, how healthy they are so what what do you think might be the ideal cycling frequency assuming you're metabolically flexible and relatively healthy is it kind of alternating a few times a week between both both approaches uh, i think uh once a week is pretty good uh, to have like one day where you have a little bit more carbs. Uh, and also, let's say, if, if someone is like a very competitive athlete or they train a lot, then for them, it can be like twice a week or something. Uh, but um, even like once a month is all also, uh, uh, you know, acceptable for some people. So, but if, but I, from my own personal experience, I can tell that if I stay in this very low carb keto diet, for more than a month, 
then uh, it, 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 it does become more increasingly difficult to shift out of ketosis without experiencing the negative side effects of it. Like uh, you, you, you begin to lose this uh, like ability to burn carbs after a month, uh, in my own experience at least. And, how, long, uh, how long have you been doing this thing? Uh, well, I, I started keto uh, somewhere in high school, well, not high school, <laughs> in my first year of college, I think. And uh, that was uh, approximately, yeah, five years ago. And yeah, like I, but I did intermittent fasting um, even in, in my last year of high school. So that was like seven years ago. Okay, good. So that's what I thought. So, you know, folks, it's really very wise of you to consider um, taking advantage of Seam's experience. I mean, he spent seven years doing this, which is probably about as long as I've been doing it also. Um, and, and he's gained valuable insights from doing it. And he's, and he's such a good writer. So I would strongly recommend picking up both books, Metabolic Autophagy and this, in his newer book, Too Stronger by Stress, because he goes into these details. And like one of the details, I mean, it's just, it's not like some, some, or even most of the information you may not know, but he puts it together in such a way that he reminds you, because we learn by repetition. And he reminds you of these important things. He says, gosh, I knew that. Why did I stop doing it? I, I literally, when I read Stronger by Stress, there was three or four huge points, that I, which I knew, you know, there wasn't new information made, but it reminded me that, yes, I need to do this. And one of those was, that I want to talk about now, is uh, the protein aspect, was this HMB which is an acronym for hydroxymethylbutyrate, which is a met metabolite of leucine, which is the most potent branch chain amino acid stimulated mTOR. So if you're going to want to activate mTOR, build muscle protein synthesis, you really need a significant quantity, like at least three grams. I mean, that, it, it, it's probably not a lot more benefit to going to double that, uh, but a three, three and a half grams, it's kind of like a light switch. You press it on, it goes on. And there's no benefit to keep on hitting the light switch up or keep on repetitively pushing it up. And it's just, it's on. So, you know, you don't, if it's already activated, there's no reason to do it anymore. So, but you got to do that. So myself, I have a kidney challenge. so I can't eat a lot of protein. And the beautiful thing about hydroxymethylbutyrate is there's no nitrogen in that thing. It's no stress on your kidneys, but you can get that. So why don't you talk about hydroxymethylbutyrate? Because I've, you know, since you reminded me of it in your book, Stronger by Stress, uh, I've been doing it with uh, great delight. And also you reminded me of breaking that up. I mean, there are talk, we talked about, you know, extending the time-restricted eating window. And I've done that. And I really noticed a big change in my body's ability to create more muscle mass. So thank mm. you for that. And why don't you expand on the HMB? Yeah, well, HMB is a byproduct of uh, leucine metabolism. And uh, leucine is uh, the most important amino acid for stimulating mTOR and turning on uh, muscle protein synthesis. So like you said, you need, you need approximately like 2.5 to 3 grams of leucine to maximize uh, muscle protein synthesis per meal. And uh, I would say that increasing it a little bit can be better if you're doing some form of time restricted eating uh, or if you have a confined eating window, uh, but it's not necessarily for eating uh, over the course of an entire day. Uh, so yeah, like I myself think, you know, yeah, and, and, and of course, uh, so using leucine uh, or HMB can be, can be really useful for uh, getting more protein synthesis from less protein, if that makes sense. Uh, 
So you, ha- you, you can get away with eating less protein and still getting the benefits of the mTOR stimulation. Uh, but I would say that leucine itself is a, is a, could be, it, could, it could be better than HMB by itself. HMB has like some anti-catabolic effects, but most of those effects are mediated by leucine and mTOR itself. So uh, I would, I personally, like you, you could use both, but if you want to like uh, get more benefits from the mTOR and muscle growth, then leucine is probably more important than uh, HMB. Okay, that's good to know. Um, but I guess the caution there too is if you have challenges with too excessive protein impairing your kidney function, then that might be a, sort of a, a better alternative for you. So you have to individualize it. Yeah. So sure. one of the other things you do in your book is really do a good job of reviewing the science. And um, you, you dive into heat shock proteins, which we uh, know is probably the primary mediator of the benefits of sauna or heat exposure. But then you've got cold shock proteins. And I tried doing a deep dive in that and uh, understand it because it's an, I mean, it's, these obviously are, uh, produce when you're exposed to cold, but you do a really good job of, of uh, identifying what they are because they're not as well known as a heat shock protein. So can you elaborate on that for a bit? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so if your body is exposed to cold, then it turns on these uh, cold shock proteins and they are basically like these uh, DNA or RNA binding uh, proteins and uh, they do almost a similar thing as heat shock proteins. They repair misfolded proteins and RNA, and they also mediate some other similar benefits uh, of like the cold stress. Like uh, they help to uh, you know increase some of the glutathione and uh, the other like st- the general stress response is characterized by uh, increase of these uh, cold shock pro- cold shock proteins when you are exposed to the cold, and yeah, like. Cold itself has like many a lot of uh, great benefits uh, similar that help the body to adapt to stress, uh, such as like you know increases alertness, uh, provides these antioxidant uh, defense uh, mechanisms similar to fasting, and uh, also just fixes you know lowers inflammation and uh, lowers oxidative stress in the body as well. So, do you think they're they're comparable to heat shock and cold shock proteins, or do you think that the heat shock is a little more effective for repairing? DNA misfolding? Um, well, I don't know. Like, uh, I haven't seen any comparisons between Yeah, them. I haven't either. That's why I was curious <laughs> I, if you, you had. Uh, well, I think, well, uh, there isn't evidence that, uh, that the cold shock induces autophagy, uh, but there is evidence that the heat shock does promote autophagy with uh, heat shock proteins. So I would maybe think that heat shock proteins may be slightly more superior to cold shock proteins because of that, because of this increased autophagy. Uh, but uh, at the same time, the cold also has like, um, I, would, I would like to think that cold has a more anti-inflammatory effect by lowering inflammation and oxidative stress. So yeah, like I think they have their own place and they probably have different effects in uh, different uh, regions of the body. So you grew up in Estonia and you still live there which I believe is pretty far north, if I'm not mistaken. And you've got regular exposure to cold for most of your life. And I, you relate a story in your book, uh, Stronger by Stress, where you're in the army 
and uh, it was like one of the coldest days of your life. And I could, I, I think it would have killed some people. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, so what? So you you do you engage in cold stress regularly, largely because of the environment you live in. Yeah, like uh, you can't really get around it. So in in Estonia, we get. In the in in the coldest um, coldest months of the year, we get uh, minus thirty degrees Celsius, which is uh, which is uh, I don't know in Fahrenheit, but it's yeah like uh, probably oh. yeah probably below zero. <laughs> yeah, well, so, zero yeah. is zero is the equivalence in both systems, so it might be minus twenty at least, I would think. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah, and uh, yeah, like it's I I personally do it for both. The, just the physical conditioning as well as the mental toughness so uh you know if you are habitually engaging yourself in cold exposure throughout the entire year then the winter month itself it uh, becomes like a piece of cake or like it becomes less stressful on yourself and it becomes less damaging so you're able to adapt to it uh, faster than normal people so if you're you know constantly using central heating or you're in the using the heating in your car and you're never really exposed to the cold for any longer than a few minutes then you're you're you know, you're, you're missing out on the benefits of the culture proteins but you're also making your body more vulnerable and more uh, fragile you know back back to the original point that we talked about so that's why i i do it just for the conditioning but the mental aspect is also really great because um you know i used to take the cold shower every morning for like for uh, maybe like two or three years every day with no no days off and it really helped me to you know develop more discipline self-discipline and self-control as well because uh, the rationale for me was that if i'm able to start the day with a cold shower then anything else for the rest of the day is going to be that much easier because i yeah. already climbed climbed over this initial challenge and i've kind of pulled the positive momentum uh, towards my side yeah, the swallow the frog concept. <laughs> get, the, yeah. get the worst thing out of their, your schedule out of the way first. So that's great. Yeah, totally. So getting back to the anti-fragility uh, aspect of the book, um, life is such that every one of us is going to be encountering stresses in our life that are unavoidable, not due to any choice of ourselves, sometimes due to a choice that we made, but frequently not. Uh, and uh, in my own case, probably one of the biggest stressors I have is with the death of both of my parents. So, and that's inevitable. We're all going to go through that. Many of us already have. Um, so it pre presents this challenge that you have to address. And one of the most useful books I've ever encountered to help with that is one that you recommended in your book too, which is a book written by David, Dr. David Hawkins. This was the last book before he actually passed away, which was Letting Go of the Pathway to Surrender. So mm -hmm. it's was really helpful for me in getting over my grief with my parents. So couldn't recommend it more heartily. I'm wondering if you have had, had any personal experiences with applying that, the, the concept in the book. Uh, yeah. Uh, I haven't had like any such tragic losses as you have, um, fortunately. And, but uh, I did read uh, Dr. Hawkins book uh, a few years ago and it's like, it had a powerful impact I, I read one of his other books power uh power versus power, force yeah power versus force first yeah. so that was like a more profound impact yeah. on me because uh yeah it's really great unra <laughs> unraveled this uh, entire uh aspect of consciousness and uh that sort of thing but the, the letting go book is also really good because uh, it kind of makes you realize that um uh, 
or teaches you to just not be so attached to uh, your like past mistakes or your own uh, shortcomings or whatnot. And uh, I think you can't really fully optimize yourself or you can't really reach a full state of health or happiness if you're, you know, like anxious about yourself or if you hate yourself. <laughs> because uh, a lot of the times uh, people tend to start to do certain things uh, out of self-pity or self-hatred but i that's not a really sustainable place to be in because you still have this uh you know sublingual stress that is affecting your actions and causing you stress on your system because the thought our thoughts and emotions have a you know pretty profound effect on our uh, physiology and especially the stress levels so uh, the body can or the brain can tell the difference between psychological stress and physiological stress it's pretty similar and uh, you can create a similar physiological response in your body as as you would while sitting down in a chair because of being anxious or because of being fearful while as you would like while running away from a lion or running after a bus or something so uh, that's why like uh, if you're constantly in this state of self-pity or self uh, self-pity or self-hatred then you are creating uh, chronic stress on your system because of that. So uh, the letting go technique, uh, which involves just accepting uh, all these things that have happened to you, as well as just not being judgmental of um, your own judgment, that can be like a really useful tool for fixing uh, some of these uh, subconscious patterns or some patterns of thinking. Great. So one of the other powerful benefits of your trainings that you offer is that you do a really good job of condensing strategies and simplifying them and how to build muscle mass. Now, for someone your age, it tends to be more cosmetic. I mean, obviously, everyone should have muscles, uh, strength and flexibility and agility. Uh, but to build high levels is, is, when you're younger is, is not as important as it is when you're older, because as you mentioned earlier, the sarcopenia occurs pretty regularly. And, and I think in large part, it may not necessarily be directly due to aging, but it's just more or less a reflection of the progressive inactivity that tends to occur with aging. Now, clearly there's some that's independent of that, uh, especially if you're engaging in these high intensity resistance training. Did you discuss? So I'm wondering if you could review some of the or highlight some of your principles, such as the multiple sets, split training, uh, and uh, you know some some specific strategies you can use that you do elaborate on more in more detail in the book. Uh, yeah, certainly. So uh, uh, I think the age-related muscle loss, uh, which is called sarcopenia. Uh, can be mitigated or uh, avoided to a certain extent, even if you are older. So uh, most of it happens, yeah, like I said, because of uh, not using the muscles and being sedentary. Uh, but, you know, there is a small amount of actual uh, anabolic resistance that occurs with age, as well as like a lot decrease in testosterone and uh, decrease in growth hormone. But I think uh, uh, a lot of it can be mitigated with staying physically active um, you know, throughout your entire life. So uh, I think once you stop, you know, moving, once you stop exercising, then that's where your body will also begin to uh, age much more uh, rapidly and acceleratedly. So uh, yeah, as 
keeping yourself physically active as long as you can is uh, probably one of the best things you can do for uh, extending your lifespan as well and health span. Uh, but when it comes to the actual resistance training, then uh, uh, you know you do have to stimulate the muscle to a certain uh, extent and at certain intensities to mitigate the response or like create the response because um, the the body only changes uh, if it needs to and uh, resistance training is uh, requires a certain level of intensity and research has shown that in order to hit that threshold you need to uh, stimulate the muscle at at about like 70 to 80 percent of its uh, one repetition maximum and do it for like a few sets uh, but unless uh, you know, unless you've got blood flow restriction training which yeah you have. exactly yeah, exactly. I wanted to get to that. That yeah, like you can you can uh, mimic that same effect with blood flow restriction, and you can get the same effect with uh, twenty or thirty percent of your uh, one rep maximum. So that's like a perfect, I think, perfect tool for the aging population as well as someone who is suffering from some injuries. So you can still uh, stimulate the muscle growth and uh, accelerate recovery even without the uh, heavy loads and without the heavy uh, exercise. So. I'm curious, as, because you have BFR, you've got the Katsu system. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I'm wondering, someone like you is obviously you're not age impaired with respect to your ability to build muscle gain. And I'm wondering how you're integrating yourself personally, someone in his, what are your mid 20s now? Yeah, yeah, I'm 25. And yeah. uh, I, I do use them basically every day. Uh, I really? like to. Yeah, I, like I, I do them. Uh, if I'm if I'm not doing like an actual workout with them, then I'll just use the the Katsu cycle, like just the on and off of the pressures. So even if I'm not doing like an actual uh, exercise with them, then I'll still do like the you know the cycle to pump more blood into the muscle and accelerate recovery. So, uh, but on some other days, I also do some uh, like the on on the arms. I'll use like the biceps curls and uh, push-ups, and with the legs, I'll do like squats and lunges or just uh, regular walking so yeah I, I really really enjoy them and i find them that they do accelerate like recovery and just even even if it's not for the exercise performance then i think the cardiovascular effects are still uh, worthwhile so doing yeah, that, that, that's interesting I, i'm a, a bit surprised but delighted at the same time that to find someone who's in unbelievable shape you're clearly in the upper one-tenth of one percent of fit individuals that i know probably overall, uh, said you're still using that. So I, I, ha I use the cycling on my legs every day when I walk the beach, which is pretty much every day now. And, uh, you know, one of the other things about being fit, especially as you get older, because with this stay at home or, or actually lack of traveling, my, my, I live in Florida, so there really wasn't any uh, enforced stay-at-home orders. Uh, but I would spend a lot of time at home, and I really – was focusing on some personal fitness challenges, like doing push-ups. So I did like 100 push-ups in three minutes. And then, you know, actually, I don't know if we posted it on our, our site yet, but there's a little video we did of that. And in an effort to teach people, there were, I was looking online for some good examples of how not to do that because to do it the wrong form is not good either. But, well, I found this great site. And this great site gave me some hints at how to – you know, improve, make it even more challenging. So I, I've had a weight belt for a long time and I've used it to improve my pull-ups, but I didn't know you could use a weight belt for push-ups. 
Did you know that? Uh, well, yeah, I've I've used uh, like a weighted vest, or I will also put weight in, weights into my backpack, so I I do use it. Yeah, well, you can do that, but you can actually use it on a weight belt, which makes it a little easier. You just have to attach it, you know. But you have to you have to be elevated, otherwise, when you go down, it'll obviously hit the floor. So you you, you know you can do it on a barbell and then put your feet yeah. on a the the bench. But man, I've been doing it with like seventy pounds, and it just makes a huge difference because <laughs> when you're doing a regular push up. You, 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 it's more of an endurance limit. You know, you run out of yeah. your muscles fatigue out, not because of you, you went to failure, you just didn't have enough fuel or whatever, but you just can't do it. But when you have the weight on there, you do go to failure, which is a total different exercise, even though it's the same motion, which is extraordinary. So, so anyway, the extent of that, I've been doing that and some really interesting tricep uh, uh, exercises and boy, it's not only made a difference in muscle growth, but it just the way you, you feel and you're able to engage in life and walk around and move and just feel so uh, powerful to be able to have that, th th those capacities at, a, at, you know, at, at my age. So I'm, I'm just can't endorse recommend, recommend exercise <laughs> more. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's one of the cheapest and one of the best uh, like biohacks out there. Yeah, no question. I mean, you, and it's certainly not the most important. I mean, I don't know that you should separate them out, but if you only had to do one, of course, the, the, the diet would probably be more important. But the exercises, you can't be optimally healthy with both of them. It just don't, doesn't work that way. Yeah. So I also noticed in your book, you talked about the importance of omega-3 fats. Um, and you have to be living under a rock not to appreciate that because it's widely known. But I was delighted that you had embraced uh, the use of krill as a particularly useful uh, strategy to get your omega-3 fats. And what, what, what can you lead what resulted in that conclusion? Uh, well, I think the main reason has to do with just uh, most fish oil tends to be let's say, not that good quality. And uh, there's also very high potential for uh, oxidation of these uh, polyunsaturated fats, especially from fish oil, even, you know, as, even if it is fish oil, because, uh, you know, it's very, uh, it's very easily damaged by heat, uh, oxygen and sunlight. And uh, most com commercial supplements tend to be oxidized to a certain extent. And even like healthy fats from, you know, salmon or uh, fish, they can become pretty inflammatory in the body if they are oxidized and rancid and they can cause lipid peroxidation, which is basically the oxidation of lipids and fats. So, um, you know, in that case, I would much rather not consume something that is going to cause more, you know, cellular damage. And uh, because it's very hard to get rid of bad fats inside your body once they get inside your body because they, they get uh, stored in the cell membrane and they all become literally a part of you. So uh, it's very, uh, like I said, like I would much rather eat some sugar and carbs than, than eat bad fats, whether that be from vegetable oils or even like rancid fish oil or rancid, uh, rancid uh, salmon or something, some other fish. Yes, what you've just stated is probably one of the wisest uh, conclusions that any knowledgeable health, natural health professional could reach. Uh, and not many people teach this. They're, 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 the primary focus is what you just mentioned, is that this fear of carbohydrates and 
that they're, you know, that processed sugars are the worst thing you can eat. And it's, it's the farthest thing from the truth. The, the, the worst thing you can eat are processed omega-6 vegetable oils because they get integrated into your cell membranes and they don't, they don't leave. When you have sugar, you, you might get an insulin spike. You might contribute to some glycolated proteins in your system, but they, they, they're gone. It's, it comes and goes. So those, those fats get integrated and screw up your cellular metabolism for months or, or even longer. So congratulations yeah. on understanding yeah. that and teaching it. Yeah, and uh, the aspect of uh, lipid peroxidation itself uh, is also accelerating aging and causes mm -hmm. carcinogenesis and also leads to the um, develop creation or the accumulation of lipofuscin, which is mm -hmm. this age-rated uh, wear and tear pigment and uh, lipofuscin also begins to cause you know cellular damage and inhibits autophagy and uh, again you know then once you have like bad fats stuck inside your cell membranes then burning fat itself also becomes an inflammatory act so if you are like fasting because you uh, and while simultaneously you, you have bad fats inside your cell membrane then you are leaching those same bad fats into your system and uh, that's why you may get like a lot of detox symptoms you may get you may actually feel worse from fasting or ketosis just because you're burning the wrong fats that are stuck inside your body fat yeah lipofuscin is uh, definitely a dangerous devil and you want to minimize your amount of that you're producing or in your system. And fortunately, there is a simple way. You don't have to get a lipofuscin test. You can just look at your skin. And yeah. those, <laughs> those spots that a lot of people call liver spots, that's lipofuscin. And that, yeah. that can actually disappear if you improve your diet. Yeah. So, yeah and and high, high iron is also uh, similarly bad because that, cannot, that, that yeah. also, lipofuscin itself is uh consistent consists of some iron and ferritin so yeah like uh, high iron in conjunction with uh, lipid peroxidation is uh, a recipe for, for disaster yeah i mean it, it's no surprise why some people come down with these diseases you know that they do because of they're just not addressing these simple strategies um so you also talk about nasal breathing and taping your mouth at night while you're sleeping, which is something I've been doing now at least three years, maybe closer to five years. And there's, it's, uh, especially if you sleep on your back, I sleep on my back with my cervical spine supported with a special pillow. And if you do that, there's a, there's a high likelihood that your, your airway is going to collapse and you'll wind up mouth breathing. So not, which is not good, not good at all. So what, how did you come to that conclusion? What, what motivated you to make that recommendation? Uh, well, I think I might have you know, come across it a few years ago um, because of related to just sleep problems or sleep apnea and that sort of thing. Because um, a lot of people who are mouth breathers, then they also tend to suffer from uh, sleep-related disorders and they tend to also become more diabetic and obese as a result of that. So like if you sleep through your mouth, then uh, you also create this uh, hypoxic state when you're sleeping and that can you know, suffer, deprive the, the brain from oxygen during the night and uh, also prevents you from going into like a deeper state of sleep. So you get just shallow sleep without the, uh, without the actual recovery from deep sleep. So uh, that in turn, is uh, just a you know a bad 
bad situation because you're not getting enough uh, sleep and uh, you're not getting enough recovery and you're developing additional insulin resistance and uh, just metabolic uh, syndrome from that. So nasal breathing uh, is a great way to prevent that from happening because we are designed to just uh, breathe through our noses. Uh, and uh, yeah, like nasal breathing itself is also less stressful on the body. So uh, if you're constantly panting or breathing through a mouth, then that also creates a sm small like stress response and creates like anxiety because uh, your body perceives it, perceives it as, as if it's like some in a dangerous situation and uh, stimulates the sympathetic nervous system. Whereas uh, nasal breathing uh, stimulates the parasympathetic nervous system and also stimulates the, uh, the vagus nerve, which is, uh, you know, related to parasympathetic tone as well so uh yeah generally nasal breathing is uh more relaxing more re stress reducing whereas breathing through a mouth constantly uh, can uh, just uh, increase uh, the stress levels yeah now if you're going to use paper tape at night or tape it should be paper tape you want to use scotch tape or some other crazy <laughs> tape so it's it's really easy to get off it's the same type of tape they put on your arm when you get your blood drawn uh so that and you can easily get it at you know on amazon so I'm wondering with the, I couldn't agree more with the with the nasal breathing and I'm wondering if you integrate that strategy when it's really difficult and challenging to do when you're really doing vigorous exercise where you're in this oxygen mm. debt that you need to reco recover from and are, do you consciously seek to not breathe, avoid breathing through your mouth? Uh, well, I think that uh, during intense exercise uh, it's not a problem if you do breathe through your mouth because uh, it's like a short time period. And, uh, you know, getting some increased sympathetic activity while you are exercising can be beneficial for just the performance and uh, increasing cortisol. So I wouldn't say that it's, uh, it's a bad thing that you, if you breathe through your mouth while you are exercising. But generally, I myself try to still stay somewhat mindful of it, even if I am exercising, uh, because, you know, in a way, it can just be a great exercise for knowing how to control your breath and uh, also know how to recover from some intense exercise faster so if you do like a heavy heavy set of squats or some deadlifts then inevitably your heart will begin to race and you're like really gasping for air because it's uh, especially if you're like pushing to some near maximum and at that point um, being able to control your breath would also enable you to recover from the set faster and uh, be able to prepare for the next set uh, faster. So from an exercise performance perspective, uh, controlling your breath to a certain extent can be beneficial. But uh, from a, like a physiological perspective or like the, let's say, the health aspects, I wouldn't say that there is a, like a big difference because uh, as long as you're still able to recover from it. So doing some form of uh, mouth breathing, doing exercise is fine. Uh, but uh, I would only reserve it to like the absolute limit. So I wouldn't do mouth breathing if I'm like going for a walk <laughs> because that's <laughs> because, because the because the intensity the intensity of that exercise is very low. I would only do it like maybe yeah if I am doing, you know, hill sprints or burpees or something like that where right. I am like actually forced to breathe through my mouth. So I'm just curious, what is Simlon deadlifting nowadays? Uh well, my maximum is uh 400 pounds, 4 yeah. or 5 I think. <laughs> for that's uh, four plates for for those who know that's four that's four plates yeah but i ge i generally nowadays don't do a, like a lot of weightlifting so i do really? just what i happened? do like 
<laughs> no, I, I still do like uh, the X3 bar. I do the calisthenics. I do gymnastics rings. I do that, that sort of oh, thing. Oh yeah, gymnast. You're you're just you, you you would a lot of people would confuse you for a gymnast. Yeah, well, I think uh, generally because of the lockdown, there wasn't the, uh, all the gyms were closed, and I think you know currently because of the new guidelines at the gyms, it's a uh, it's a really big hassle to go to the gym as well because of, like all the additional procedures you have to go through and that sort of thing. So I I'd much rather just work out at home and uh, get get my workout that way. Yeah, so you got four plates. I'm up to three and a quarter. I, my goal someday is to get to four plates, but uh, oh, congratulations on that. Well, that's great. amazing. Well, that's yeah. amazing for you. I don't know anyone that old who could uh, do that. Yeah, but I'm getting there. I'm three and a half is my near near goal. But anyway, um, so I'm curious. You know, we both share a fascination with longevity and strategies to get there, and it seems from my review of the literature, which has been, you know, been a passion for a while now, the, the most powerful intervention outside of what we've already discussed today, metabolic, you know, vitamin D optimization and, and metabolic flexibility would be to, as an intervention would be senolytic therapy. And that is uh, strategies to remove senescent cells. A senescent cell is a zombie cell that is essentially not functioning, but not really reproducing at all. It stopped reproducing, but it's making these, uh, it's called a SAS, but which is a, a, a inflammatory producing substances and, and kills and contaminates all the cells around them. So you don't need a lot of these cells to really damage the local tissues that they're deployed in. And some of the most exciting research I've seen in anti-aging involves these senolytic therapies where they're getting dramatic turnarounds. It's almost like an anti-powerful anti-aging event where you're turning back the aging clock. Uh, so I'm wondering if you could comment on that, what your take is on it, and if you're particularly fond of any senolytic therapies. Um, yeah, I do think that uh, clearing senescent cells is really important for aging. And uh, yeah, I think it's, it's a very uh, potential new field of therapy as well, especially for the anti-aging. And, uh, and well, you think like the, one of the easiest and most effective ways of doing that, of clearing the senescent cells is, uh, you know, intermittent fasting. And uh, I believe like, you know, ketosis and exercise, all those healthy habits that we talked about already, they all have a beneficial effect on clearing those senescent cells as well. Uh, I do believe, I also believe that certain compounds like, you know, curcumin or uh, EGCG, uh, resveratrol, they, sulforaphane, uh, allicin, those things, they can be, uh, they have like, they could uh, help. Um, they have, may have some potential for that as well. Like the research is probably not there to be like conclusive, uh, but I think uh, using those compounds, um, they probably can be used um, in some shape or form, at least, at least um, in some situation. I don't think that uh, they can be beneficial if you take them all the time. Uh, because the foundation should be just a healthy lifestyle habits and uh, intermittent fasting and those things, uh, but uh, maybe increasing them, you know, again punctually, cyclically, in some shape or form, is a is a probably that I, I, I myself am I'm, I am doing and uh, I probably will will keep on doing as well in the future. Really, you're doing some cellular therapy? No, no, I, I mentioned uh, the the compounds like you oh know, the compounds. Okay, not yeah. for because you don't need it at your age. Really, only becomes important in the you know forties would be the earliest, but probably more likely fifties and sixties. Um, yeah, 
you, you left out quercetin, which is probably, that's the one they're using in the trials, which is a simple, inexpensive, over-the-counter bioflavonoid that uh, seems to be, you know, quercetin to satinib are the ones that they're using clinically. Satinib is a, dr a drug, so I kind of stay away from those. But if you're going to use those, it would seem that, as you mentioned, to, you want to combine approaches because when you, it's like one plus one equals three. So there's powerful synergism there. So if you're going to use, so we know that intermittent fasting or regular fasting even is a powerful stimulus to or senolytic therapy. So it would seem when you would take these senolytic compounds to take them when you're fasting. So if you haven't eaten for four or five hours, take it when before you go to bed and you've got another eight hours on top of it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree because um, like there's a, there's a Chinese quote by Confucius who said that the man who chases two rabbits catches none. So if you are, let's say, for example, you want to build muscle, you want to stimulate mTOR, but at the same time, you also want to clear senescent cells, then you can't really do them at the same time. So you can't eat uh, or it's, like, it's counterproductive to be you know, taking BCAs or leucine and eating a bunch of protein while at the same time taking these uh, senolytics or quercetin or whatnot. It would be yeah. much better to take them at the separate times and different times uh, because uh, then you're prioritizing only one goal. You're actually prioritizing either muscle growth or you're prioritizing the autophagy and senescent cells. So uh, that's why, yeah, like I would much rather take those compounds in a faster state on, on days where I am not trying to build muscle or when I'm not trying to stimulate them to. And uh, yeah, for example, I, I, th I think of those things as like things that speed up the benefits of fasting. So for example, you know, if you take, uh, let's say something like berberine uh, or quercetin or, or uh, curcumin, while you, while you have been fasting for about 20 hours, then you can probably get the same benefits as if you would have been fasting for approximately like 24 hours. So it kind of accelerates some of the benefits of the fast because you're pushing the, you're pushing the uh, gas pedal for autophagy with those compounds even further because uh, you're suppressing mTOR further, you're suppressing insulin, and you're turning on these autophagy-boosting pathways as well with those compounds. So um, yeah, you can you can mimic a longer fast with a shorter eating window or a, with a, with a slightly longer eating window. If you take those compounds on, on a, like a fast state. All right. Well, thank you very much for that information because, uh, yet another pearl you've given me then that I've learned not only as a piece of information, but something I'm going to apply and regularly in my daily life, because I, you know, I've, I've kind of abandoned satellitic therapy. I was doing it for a while, but you know, I th and I think I need to be a bit more aggressive. So maybe once a month or maybe less frequently, I'll do a full fast. But at the tail end of that fast, you know, that the night before I go to sleep, I'm going to take some pop, some do senolytic therapy. The beautiful thing about senolytic therapy is you don't have to do it that frequently. It's not something you do every day by any means, certainly not every week, yeah. maybe not even every month. Maybe it's like once a quarter. That's all you need to do it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do think so. And like, you know, depends a lot on the person. Like if you're already healthy, you don't live, um, you know, a, a, a crappy lifestyle, then you don't need to do it either because you don't have that many senescent cells uh, around. And you can already 
keep the house clean, so to say, with uh, with regular intermittent fasting and time machine eating and exercise and taking saunas and those things. So uh, yeah, like definitely, it's not because too much can also be harmful. And that's yeah, your whole yeah, point. Just, right. The, You've got to get in balance. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. that's the whole, whole point or, of stress and hormesis disease that you got to have the right dose, and uh, that right dose is very different between people. So we have to find out what is what is uh, the best dose for you, depending on your situation and depending on your um, metabolic uh, conditions. All right, so we covered a lot of information, some of the highlights, at least what I thought some of the highlights of your book were, but are there any that I missed that you'd like to review or emphasize? Um, I think uh, one of the key insights that I kind of uh, learned from uh, this, the, the writing of this book was that uh, like autophagy and NAD especially can be also protective against uh, things like emf because uh, you wrote <laughs> like a really awesome book about it emf and uh, in that you know you give a lot of uh, practical information about uh, how do you protect yourself against uh, 5g and emfs so i do believe that emf uh, can have like a mild hormetic effect on the body and our bodies can adapt to it uh, eventually in 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 a gradual way uh, but one cool finding that I found was that autophagy can help to protect some of the effects of EMF. Uh, there isn't like any human studies, but the, at least in my studies, autophagy helps to like uh, reduce the stress from EMF. And I, I personally think that if you were to be put into a high EMF environment, then you would do much better and you would be, you would stay healthier if you had like some increased basal autophagy simultaneously activated. And if you were to be in ketosis, because both of those things can provide protection against oxidative stress and uh, they also uh, mitigate the negative side effects of that EMF compared to something like if you were to be going into the same environment with, uh, with a, like a sugar burning engine or if with, like a, with a bunch of uh, oxidized fats in your system. I couldn't agree more. Uh, I, I felt similarly, although some people in, in the EMF field don't believe that. I, I thought that there was strong biological support for that position. And uh, an extension of that is something you may not know about, but for the last three years, I've been working on developing a shielding tent uh, that is portable, that you can literally, it weighs like two pounds, you can put in your, easily put into your carry-on luggage and take with you or just use it at your home. And the reason I developed this is kind of personally for me, because when I travel, although not so much this year, uh, you go into a hotel and every hotel you're going to be in, pretty much everyone I've been, even at elite resorts, like I was in San Aviv in Mexico, and they, they, they don't allow cell phones in this resort. You know, they're really diligent. They understand EMFs and promote avoiding them, but they have no control over the property 100 yards away where they build cell phone towers. <laughs> so you still have this exposure, this pervasive exposure that virtually no one on the planet can avoid. Virtually. I mean, there are some permits that live in caves, I'm sure, that you know, are, are, are protected. But those are the very, very few, few of those people around. So anyway, we have this pervasive exposure. So aligned with that, and very similar to the hormesis, is, or exercise, where you, you can't exercise all the time or it's going to be problematic. So you have to rest and recover. So that's, you know, if you can sleep at night with no EMF stress, allow your body to repair 
then you recover, then you go out in the world and you get this dose. <laughs> so, but I think you need that stress, that time off to build up that resiliency, yeah. that anti-fragility. So uh, yeah, this, by the time this interview airs, we, we will be in production. It took three long years, but uh, we wow. got it down to the point where it reduces over 99% of the, the EMFs. You could be right next wow. to a Wi-Fi router and still be safe inside there. Wow, that's, <laughs> that sounds awesome. And yeah, I totally agree that you, in order for these, all of these uh, stressful things to have a beneficial effect and in order to trigger hormesis and antifragility, then you do need time for recovery uh, because uh, you know, there's, the, there's the event, there's the exposure, and uh, there's the adaptation period or the recovery period. So the adaptation occurs only in the recovery period. And uh, the best, the most profound period for recovery is sleep. So yeah, like sleeping in a low EMF environment, sleeping uh, with uh, no like artificial light and uh, sleeping without a full stomach is uh, all those things are really important for just facilitating the best uh, recovery that you can have. Yeah, so it's a great combo. So thank you for reminding me of that. Uh, any other points you'd like to emphasize? Um, no, yeah, like uh, I think we did, we did a really good overview. Like um, there's yeah there's there's it's important to uh engage in this uh this this small stressors uh that have a hormetic effect on a like a regular basis uh because they they're not like permanent you can't uh you're gonna lose them <laughs> if you don't use them uh, so if you don't uh, use the sauna then you're gonna lose your ability to tolerate heat and the same applies to exercise uh the same applies to some fasting so yeah like all those things are you know they should be a part of your regular lifestyle and uh, they are really just beneficial for your overall uh, longevity as well as just re resiliency against stress so i personally feel that doing intermittent fasting and doing cold showers and doing heat heat exposure all those things have helped me to uh, tolerate stress in uh, in other areas of life as well much better like i'm able to uh, tolerate stress from work i'm able to tolerate stress from other people so i don't get triggered or i don't get angry at other people i'm not stressed out from those things uh, because my kind of stress bucket uh, my stress resilience is uh, much higher than it than it is for like at the average person okay so the book is stronger by stress and when will it be out uh it's gonna be out august the 15th okay good so we'll we'll have this interview around that time It'll be available to all major publishers like on Amazon. And yeah, yeah, Amazon, yeah. Oh, that's great. All right. Well, this has been awesome. Uh, I couldn't recommend the book more heartily. Not only this book, Stronger by Stress, which is really great. It's a good follow-up to metabolic autophagy, but I would recommend both. I mean, if you haven't got, gotten the first book, I would definitely get it. They're tremendous. It's a great combo. It's a one-two combo. Literally, one, some of the best health books I've ever read. Uh, because you just cover the broad basis in a very easy to understand way, but yet deep. You go deep on the science. This is not a superficial read. There's, I can't tell you how many books I read, and I could read them in like 45 minutes because they're just, they're just want, want to be me too books. That's all they are. They're just repeating what everyone else is saying. You're not doing that. You're, you're, you're covering the important basics, but you're going deep. And, and, you're, and even if you know this stuff already, like for me, I have learned – you have personally changed my life by reading these books. I mean, because you've reminded me of important concepts I just knew at one time and just neglected to implement. So I'm grateful that you're compiling this. Keep on doing the work because uh, I'm benefiting. And I, I'm sure anyone watching this is going to benefit if they pick up a copy of the books. 
Well, yeah, thank you for that. And I'm glad that you, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good job. All right, well, look forward to your next ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs>